The text is before you. I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 2. And um, just in case someone might be thinking, I thought Christmas was over. I want you to know that what we read in Matthew chapter 2 is taking place some two years after Jesus was born. So Christmas is never over. Matthew chapter 2, I'll read the first 12 verses of the Word of God. And I'd like us to begin something this new year. Uh, The reading of God's Word In the Old Testament, whenever God's word was read, the people rose. Stand as we read the word of God. Follow in your Bibles. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi's from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod secretly called the Magi's and determined from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem and and sent him to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, Report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east east, went on before them until it came over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming in the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not not to return to Herod, the Magi went went for their own country by another way. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation in our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If nothing captures your attention in the arrival of the Magi's, it has to be their question. Have you ever given thoughts to what questions they ask? The question was this. I like what the King James says. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? The reason that question is so attractive is because kings are not born. I come from a British country, so I know a little bit of this, that 
individuals are born into the royal family and then they take their places as to what place they have. Like some people in the British family have not a chance to ever become king or queen because they're 30 seconds or 40 seconds. Kings are not born. They're given that title after a certain period of time. You know, I don't know that Charles is waiting for his mother to die because he can never become king until Elizabeth dies. And if things go the way that they're going, he may never become king. So when the Magis ask, where is he who is born king? They're saying something unique that no human being could ever say about another family upon the face of the earth. So what what do we learn from this? What does this question suggest to us as we come to the table this morning, uh, let me share two thoughts about what I call the prerogative of a king. The prerogative of a king. Listen to what they said. Where is he who is born, or your translation, has been born? Past tense. He's been born a king, not made a king, not become a king. But he is born. It means that his origin, his origin existed before his birth. And so the question must be asked, where was he a king? On what planet was he existing where he reigned as king? I call your attention to two passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New And I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And if anything should capture our attention, this is one of the passages that when you read it, you are captivated by something absolutely unique. Then I want you to hold your fingers there, or your finger there, and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. And verse 41. Don't look for it as yet. Just have your fingers there. Now, Isaiah, chapter 6. Listen as I read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven, of the heavenly armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Note just two brief things from this. He saw a throne And the throne was occupied by a king. 
because he said he was sitting on the throne. And the sitting posture of a king is that he is in absolute control of what is going on. But this was a vision given to Isaiah of what was taking place in heaven. It was not some place in, in West Jerusalem or East Jerusalem. It was not any place on the earth. It was in heaven. And he says that the creatures in heaven, creatures before whom you and I, if they were to appear before us, would frighten us because of the, the purity and the transparency of them. And they are only reflectors of the perfection of God. So here Isaiah said, I saw the king and he was sitting on a throne. A throne that was undisturbed by the death of Uzziah. A throne that was undisturbed by the, the, the little puny rulers that ruled in those days. He saw a king. Now quickly turn to John chapter 12. Jesus is speaking to his contemporaries. And John is recording now what took place. And he's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12. And he got, he got to the place where he speaks of what Isaiah was seeing and saying. Look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. He saw his glory. Where did he see his glory? In Isaiah chapter 6. In fact, in John 17, 5, Jesus said, Father, I pray that you will restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world was. So John is saying that the king that, that Isaiah saw hundreds of years before was the pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ sitting on a throne. So to answer the question, where was he king? He was king in glory. He was king in a place where no one revolted against him since the devil left. He was king where the seraphim, the cherubims, the angels, all bowed down gladly. That is why, my friends, when, when he was born, the angels came and the glory of the Lord shone round about them because they lived in that glory. The glory that was shining around the angels that pronounced, announced his birth was given to them by the babe in the manger. What a wonder. I don't know if you caught one of the things I do when I hear the pianists, the violinists playing their songs. I, I'm usually familiar with them. And, 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 and I don't know if you listen when the first song that was played this, mor this morning at the communion and the last verse of the first song is one of my favorite. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest Lord, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever. 
And should I fainting be, Lord, may I never, never outlive my love for thee. That's what the angels in heaven are saying. They are baffled, if you please, as they look over the corridors of heaven and see this wonder in Bethlehem. Because they knew that he who was in that manger was he who made everything that was made. That's the wonder of it. And I trust that God will help us to realize that when they said, he's king, that this is not make-believe. He really is a king. Secondly, the ownership of the king, not only his origin. I, I was never more impressed with this as I was in preparing this. Listen to what they said. They came and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. His star. Every time we think of that, we simply think of that little thing. And, and you know, it's interesting. That there is a, must be a satellite just a little bit beyond our house. Every night I go home, I see that star there. And I keep wondering, I wonder if it's looking at me. <laughs> you know, coming right down. It's not simply a star as though, oh, it belongs to him in that sense. When he said, we have seen his star... He is say, they're saying that the star that we saw is in the ownership of the one to whom it was being directed by, or two. Let me take your mind. Turn to Psalm 147. Psalm 147 and verse 4. And as you read that psalm, try to capture what the psalmist is saying as far as the stars are concerned. Verse 4. He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives names to all of them. He counts the numbers of the stars. How many stars are there in the heavens? God, and you know what the King James translation says? He telleth. He telleth. God has absolute authority over the stars because he made them. He made them. And what you make, you can name. You can give whatever name you want to. <laughs> I looked at some of the names that parents give to their kids in Hollywood, and I would disown my parents if they did that to me. <laughs> just think, just think for a moment that when God wants a star, he calls that star by the name he gave to it, and that star responds because that star recognized his name given to it by God. And that's not the first time that God shows his ownership over his creatures. In, Genesis, in Jonah chapter 1, 
when Jonah was running away from God. And Jonah paid his way to go in the opposite direction. And they were going to throw him in the sea. And they did. The text says, God appointed a great fish to swallow him. Have you ever asked yourself why that fish didn't chew? It was under the absolute control of God. Absolute control. My friends, what I want, what I want, see, Jesus was not only one who owns, but when the son was in a manger, he was guided by a star which he brought into existence by his father. And God, see, God the Father was not in the manger. God the Son was. And God the Father was controlling everything providentially so that that star was being led because that star was told. God telleth the stars what it was supposed to do. And that star was following orders. God made the creatures. Have you ever thought, my friends, listen to Acts chapter 17 and verse 25, verse 20. And he made, he made from one blood every man and woman. God made and named the stars. God named and called the big fish. God created you. And if the stars are owned by God because he created them. And the fish is owned by God because he created them. God owns you because he created you. And he does not only own us by creation. He owns us by redemption. We had it read from Titus chapter 2. He loved us and gave himself in our place so that the ownership of God, uh, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You remember when, when the, the, the Pharisees asked whether the, the disciples paid taxes, Jesus told Peter to go and get a coin, and then he asked, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's, and Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar." He didn't have to say anything else. Because Caesar only has certain things. The second part of that, he said, and to God, the things that are God. If Caesar's face is on the coin, God's image is in you. And he owns you. He owns you. We, we are not simply here. We are not accidents of two people coming together. In the wise providence of God, we are here because God fashioned us. He set our, our, our faculties where they are. Everything about us cries, he owns me, he owns me, he owns me. That's what the stars said. 
That's what the big fish says. Is that what you say? He owns me. So there we've seen the origin of the king. The ownership of the king. But, but, but friends, we have one more thing. Where was Jesus king? Where did he reign? I love 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 reads, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Though he was rich, where was he rich? He was rich in heaven. (laughs) He was rich in mercy. He's rich in love. He's rich in power. And he gave all that prerogative up when he came to earth so that when he walked on earth, Isaiah said there was nothing in him that we would desire him. He didn't have a place to put his head. He didn't own a house. <laughs> I heard of a, uh, a young man. <laughs> his father said to him, um, why don't you get a haircut? And the young man said, oh, I want to be like Jesus. And his father said, oh, why don't you give up his car? He didn't have one. <laughs> you see, see, my friends, one of the things we can, we can, there are certain things we can take of Jesus and say we like this, we don't like this, but we have to deal with this. If it says Jesus was rich, does it mean that he had a lot of money? That's not what he's talking about. He was rich in his being, rich in his character, rich in his expression of goodness and love. There is no limit to it. He's beyond our thoughts when it comes to how rich he was. But Psalm 24 once says, he owns the cattle in a thousand hills, the earth and everything in it. He owns it all. Because nothing, please listen, John 1, 3, nothing came into being apart. He brought it into being. He owns everything. Everything. Are you smart? Are you beautiful? Are you rich? It's a gift. He owns it. He gave it to you. Let me get quickly to the presence of the king. The presence of the king. This is seen in Matthew 2, 2 and 11. What do you do in the presence of a king? What do you do? You begin by adoring him. You begin by adoring him. Look at what the text says. When they went into the house and saw Mary and the child. Please listen. They worshipped him. Not Mary. They worshipped him. And this tells me a couple of things about worship that we have to get used to in our own lives. First of all, worship must be discriminatory. Worship must be discriminatory. 
we can be easily distracted from worshiping God because of other things. Good things, if you please. When, when he came into the house, when we worship, we must be sure that we are adoring the right object. Listen, listen to Exodus 20, 4 and 5. I thought it should begin at verse 2 because of the speaker. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must have no other gods before me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to it nor worship it. Have you ever thought that the wise men, the magis, came from a place of, of worshiping objects? Yet when they got into the home, they worshipped him. They were, they, they were captured by something in that, in that, that home. And it was Jesus. Listen, I, I love this so much. But we are distracted. See? Because sometimes when we come to worship, we worship for the wrong reason. I was confronted by this in Toronto. Listen, listen to this. Sunday mornings is conceived as a means to accomplish something other than worship. We worship to raise money. Have you thought of that? I, I, had, I had one of my superintendents came to me in, in, in Toronto and said we'd like to send a team to give a seminar at the church on a Sunday morning service. The church was a lot bigger than some of the others. And I said, I'm sorry, no. I mean, I was taking my life into my own hands. I said, we do not worship God to get to something else. Worship is an end in itself. If you cannot go higher than God, you can go lower, but not higher. And I, I refused to it. And I, I will tell you now, I, I was not on his good side for the, the rest of his tenure. On Sunday mornings, it is conceived of a, as a means to accomplish something. We worship to raise money. We worship to attract crowd. We tell the kind of worship we have so that non-believers will hear it. And I think I can, I can cope with that. We worship to attract crowds. We, we are, and listen, listen to this one. We worship to heal human hurts. You know, God asked Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. And as Abraham was on his way to the mountain, you know what he said? We're going to worship. It's not that we don't care about those other things. But my friends, when we come to the table, and you notice that when we have our communion service, that I don't talk about a lot of other things. God can heal you where you're sitting right now, but the purpose we're here is to worship him. That's why we're here. We worship to improve church morale. Let's see if we change into theater seats. I'm, I'm not joking. I've been, I've been in places where the whole thing is. We now have a, a, a cafe at the entrance of the church. And we have theater. I was at a minister's meeting, and the entire meeting was about having, we now have theater seats. Well, I tell you, I've never been back. 
What I'm saying is that worship can take the form of anything apart from God. We worship to improve church morale, to give talented musicians an opportunity to fulfill their calling. <laughs> Have you not heard that? How many popular singers today did not start in, on, in church choir? Whitney Houston? They all started in church choir. My sister attends a, a fairly large church in, in Houston, Texas. And one of the girls who attended the church was on, on uh, show where kids go to exercise their talents, whatever it's called. I don't watch it. What's that? American Idol. American Idol. The church adjusted their service so everyone could watch her on television. We worship, my friends, anything but God. That's why worship is so boring to people. That's why we have to keep trying something new every time because it is not the wonder of God we're worshiping. Worshiping something else. And we want something other than God. We want God to be the bridge too. When the wise men went into the room, they saw Mary. Mary was not a distraction to the worshiping of Christ. People come to a church because, or know to a church because they don't have the right kind of things for the children. Children don't learn about righteousness, they learn about the right things. By the way, this is not mine. This is, I copied this from somebody else. I just don't want to use their name. We help marriages to stay together, to evangelize the lost, to motivate people for service. Why do we worship? In the presence of the king, we must be discriminatory. We must be sure that our faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It trusts the ever-living one whose wounds for me shall plead. Discriminatory. Secondly, worship must be devotional. Worship must be devotional. We have come to worship him. Do you know it? I don't know exactly. No one has been able to tell. But those wise men left at least two years before they got to Bethlehem. Two years. And the purpose for which they left, Beth, uh, left Persia was not a distraction by all the things they had to go through, in, included, including Herod. The purpose for which they started out was the purpose for which they ended. They were devoted. They were devoted. I, I think again, I think again of how often, my friends, we lose that sense. I, I don't, I, I really don't want to to be scolding, and I certainly am not. But how many of us prepare to worship? You know, I, I was telling someone, I said, I, I usually write my check to the church on Saturday night because I don't want 
I want it to be, I prepared yesterday for tomorrow. I want tomorrow, Sunday, to be a time that my mind is looking forward to fulfill what I started to do during the week. They left two years, and they were moving and moving and moving and moving and moving, and they kept the purpose for which Saturday night or Saturday is a day of preparation for Sunday. So that when Sunday morning comes, the one thing I have in mind is to leave home to come to be with you. Because when we come together, we're going to worship God. It must be devotional. I don't remember, I don't worship when I get here. I worship all during the week with the, the, the physical thing that I do, but my mind is set in one direction once Saturday night comes because I want to, I want to prepare myself for Sunday. I don't want any distractions. Devotional. It means I'm committed to it. Thirdly, quickly, worship must be defined. Worship must be defined. And I borrow this from a great, great mind of the past, Jonathan Edwards. Listen to what he says about worship. The heart hungers that honors God. He said this. The essence of authentic corporate worship, note the word corporate, is the collective experience of heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God. Not for, but in. See, that's what happens when you're devoted to. Heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God. Now listen, listen to this other point. Or a trembling that we do not have it and a great longing for it. <laughs> Heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God or the fact that I don't want to sit there and not have any sense of who he is. And I want to long for it that I might be satisfied in the glory of God. I wish I had time. My time is up to prolong that, but perhaps it will come in, in the, the days to come. Lastly, in the presence of the king, you don't only adore him in the presence of the king, you acknowledge him. Look at what they did. They presented their gifts. They brought it with them from Persia. And, and all during that two years, that thing belonged to the king they were going to worship. They did not change it. They did not give it to someone else to give. They brought it and they presented to him their gifts. By presenting it to him, they were saying, there was a longing in our hearts that can only be fulfilled as I acknowledge who you are. And they gave it. Dear friends, did you acknowledge him this morning in your singing, in your giving, in your taking of the elements? They gave their gifts because they were acknowledging that he was worthy of it. That if anyone, anyone should have this, Jesus should. Because he's king. This is what you do for a king. We don't, we don't, I searched in a hymn book for this, and I had to go to some of my old hymn books to find this song, but I, I, the newer ones don't have it. Who is he in yonder stall? 
You've got to be an old English man or woman to remember this. But the, the first verse goes like this. Who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress, fasting in the wilderness? Tis the Lord, oh, wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. The King of glory. That one veiled in human flesh is the King of glory. Fall at his feet, we humbly fall, and crown him, crown him, Lord of all. That's the king. And that's the king, my friends, to whom we want to commit ourselves as we come to a new year. He has given us breath to see the beginning of it. And he will give us grace to present to him our gifts during the new year. And may we give it in a way that he will recognize and accept it and bless it that others might come to know through what we do here for his glory he will make known to the ends of the earth. That's what we will trust God for. He is the king of glory. Let's pray. We were going to sing a song, but it was not in all the books, so we didn't get a chance. But one verse goes this way. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy agony leads me to Calvary. Oh, friends, on that cross was a king. In that manger was a king. And at the throne of God this morning is a king. And we fall before him and crown him Lord of all. Amen.